very late Friday night, actually really, really early uh, Friday morning, um, we were all sound asleep, just like most of the world is at that particular time in the middle of the night. And all of a sudden, you know, in our house, you know, bedroom two, glass break alert, bedroom two, glass break alert. And I'm just telling you, when you wake up like that from a sleep, it will scare the sanctified flip right out of you. <laughs> and once I, I came to my senses, I, I determined that I needed to get out of bed and do something about this after I had determined that Allison was not going to get out of the bed and do something <laughs> about this. So I reach over into the nightstand and I pull out my 357 and I chamber the bullet and I turn my laser light on and here I go out the door and I'm making my way to bedroom two, that's Shepherd's bedroom. And I had no idea what would be waiting on the other side of the house behind Shepherd's bedroom door. And in a moment like that, you can only imagine and you can only try to prepare for what could be happening in that moment, a worst case scenario. And it dawned on me after the fact that in the moment that I reached for a gun and I charged out of my bedroom door down the hallway, it dawned on me that I never once considered for a moment whether or not he was worth the risk. I never once stopped to think, how well did he behave yesterday? <laughs> he get his report cards yet? Is, is he performing up to level? How many rules has he broken? And how many rules has he kept this past week? Not for a moment, because when your kids are involved, you just run towards the mess. So I go in the door, you know, kind of a, a combination of Barney Five meets, you know, Special Agent Ethan Hunt. Uh, and, and I go in and, and I clear the room because I, I've seen them do that on Blue Bloods. And, you know, you walk in and you clear the room. It's like, so I go, I check the glass and nothing's broken. And I go to the bedroom, check the glass, nothing's broken. I check the, you know, the closet. And, and then I run back out to make sure that it wasn't another glass. And I, I go around the perimeter of our house. And then I run back in Shepherd's bedroom and he's underneath the cover. He's not come out from beneath the cover. And then he whispers, Dad, I think I knocked over a bottle. I said, what do you mean? He said, my water bottle fell off my bed. And sure enough, his water bottle had been knocked off the bed and set the glass sensor off. And I was like, what the heck didn't you tell me this like two minutes ago? Before I had like four heart attacks. I could have killed myself. I could have harmed my wife. I could have harmed you or your brother, sweet Lord in heaven. I just wanted to tell you that story. But anyway, hey, if you're a guest of ours, we're in part four of our series all about the Bible. And if you know anything about the Bible at all, you know that the Bible are full of stories. The Bible is absolutely full of stories. There's stories about individuals. There's stories about couples. There's stories about families. There's stories about adults and children, men and women. There's stories about tribes and nations and kingdoms. Stories about priests and kings and warriors. And that's all interesting, and that's all very noteworthy, and you should read those stories. But the bigger idea is that those stories all come together to tell one larger, more important story. And that's what this series is all about, because we're talking about the fact that the story of Scripture, the story of Scripture, helps us make sense of all the other stories in Scripture. Now, the Bible, like all other stories, it has a beginning, it has a middle, and it has an end. And we find the beginning of the story in what we call the Old Testament. The Bible is divided into two parts, the Old Testament and the New Testament. 
And so even if you're not a Christian or you're not familiar with a lot of this stuff that we're talking about, you should know that the only reason, reason that Christians are interested in the Old Testament is because of what happened in the New Testament. The only reason that we care about the beginning of the story is because of what happened or rather who happened in the middle of the story. And in the middle of the story, Jesus shows up on the pages of history. He lives He's crucified, he's buried, he's raised from the dead. His followers and hundreds of others become witnesses of it. And all of a sudden, as we follow Jesus, we find ourselves interested in the Old Testament because the Old Testament was Jesus's Bible. When Jesus walked on the earth, the Old Testament was his Bible. He loved it, he believed it, he studied it, and he referred to it in so many of his teachings. So as Gentiles, non-Jewish people, when you follow a Jewish savior who believed in the Jewish scriptures and said, hey, the Jewish scriptures are actually all about me, you'd find yourselves interested in the Old Testament. And so last week, we looked at the beginning of the beginning of the story. In Genesis 1 at verse 1, the beginning of the beginning of the story. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And that is the beginning of a story but it is also the beginning of the story. And the beginning of the story serves as the foundation for the rest of the story. That's the foundation on which the rest of the story is gonna be laid. It offers us the framework for how we read the rest of the story. And so Moses wrote the book of Genesis about 3400 BC. Uh, that means about 1400 years before Jesus showed up on the planet, Moses wrote Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And it's believed that Moses wrote that towards the end of his life before Israel went over into the promised land, before Moses would die and Joshua would take over. And the reason that Moses wrote this book and the subsequent books to Israel was to shape Israel's view of God, their view of the world, their view of all of mankind and to help them make sense of their place in the middle of it all. Now, this gets us right where we need to be today. So I want you to listen to this. He writes to a people who had timeless questions. Now we all have questions about the bigger things in life, the why, where did I come from? You know, what's my purpose? You know, where am I going? You know, the big questions of life about origin and purpose. And those are just not unique to us. That's just not unique to our generation. It's just not unique to our geography or our culture. Those are questions that all religions, people have asked those questions, wrestled with those questions. People all around the world of every generation have had those philosophical questions of origin and purpose. So when you open up Genesis, Moses is writing to a group of people just like us who have timeless questions, but they are asking those timeless questions constrained by ancient understanding an ancient cultural context. And so he writes to people who have questions just like we do, but yet they're constrained within ancient context and understanding. But here's what Moses does. Moses is gonna write to them in a way that they understand and we can as well, because they don't have the same questions that we have, because they don't have the same 2021st century understanding of some things that we have. So there's no way that they could have asked the questions that we have then that we now possess today. But the bigger questions, the most important questions, they share with us and Moses addressed those questions. And so the big idea is that in Genesis, Moses is answering timeless questions within an ancient context in such a way as to provide timeless answers. And in Genesis 1, when he tells the story of creation, 
He tells us about one God who is uncreated, who created everything. And his point, if you weren't here last week, I would encourage you to go back and watch or listen. His point is not how did God create the world? And his point is not when did God create the world? His point is that God created the world. And so the good news is you do not have to walk away from Jesus in order to follow science. And in order to follow science, you don't have to walk away from Jesus. As Christians, we believe that the text, the scriptures are inspired, but we do not believe our interpretations of the text are inspired. So we hold tight to the inspired text, but we hold loosely our interpretation of the inspired text because we could be wrong about our interpretation. We could be wrong about what we thought the author intended to be communicated. And so thus you've got Christians who read Genesis 1, Genesis 2, Genesis 3, and come away with all different types of interpretation, even though they all love Jesus and believe that the scripture is indeed inspired and from God. Now, this gets us to where we need to be because when you open up Genesis 1 and then you flip over to Genesis 2, you find that there's a bit of a difference. You, you find that there's a bit of a difference between the creation account of Genesis 1 and the creation account of Genesis 2. At the end of Genesis chapter 1, we were you know, introduced last week to the fact that God created mankind in his image, male and female. That they were the same in some ways, they were different in other ways, but they were equal in every single way. That's what we got introduced to last week. They were the same in some ways, different in other ways, but they were equal in every single way. When you read Genesis 1, you find out that God created over time. You find out that God created from a less biological state of complexity to a greater state of biological complexity. You find that the earth is uh, younger than the universe and that you know human life is younger than the earth. And you find all of these things that are absolutely compatible with science. And then you get to Genesis 2 and then it seems as though there's something else going on. But the big important thing in Genesis 1 is male and female. The important thing is mankind, that he created them and he placed his image on them, that they bear his image. Everybody say image. That's the big deal. They bear his image. And male and female, they are two halves of the whole. They complete each other. Same in some ways, different in other ways, but they are equal in every single way. And so what we find out is Genesis offers us, Genesis offers us a worldview that shapes our view of God, the world, mankind, and our place in it all. That, that's what Genesis is offering all of us. And then in Genesis chapter 2, we read, that then the Lord God formed a man. Now, it, it's not the best translation in most of our English Bibles. Uh, this is the New International Version. Uh, but if you have like a New American Standard Version or something as though, or you read Hebrew, you will find out that in the Hebrew language, it actually says God created or formed the human or the man or Adam. When you hear the word Adam, that's what Adam means. It means human or humanity, that God created the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living being. Now at the end of Genesis one, we were told that God created male and female, made them in his image. But here in Genesis two, we are being introduced to the fact that God formed a human and he breathed his life. He was formed from the dust, he was formed. And so I think that this is, this may not be of interest to you, but I think it's a really 
great interest and I think it's of great importance because sometimes uh, if we don't talk about the elephant in the room, then people are left just to have questions uh, that perhaps there is an answer to and sometimes people's unanswered questions cause them to walk away from faith rather than to walk towards faith. But when you talk about anything from Genesis 1 through 11, you take a risk in, in making someone upset because we all have so many deep-seated ideas. We've been taught from the time that some of us were children about what Genesis 1 through 11 means. But Genesis 2, when you read it after Genesis 1, you will find out that it appears to be, and it sounds to be, a very different account than the creation that is recorded in Genesis chapter 1. And it seems to, on first reading, that the account of Genesis 2 seems to be in contrast or in contradiction in some ways to the account in chapter 1. Because in chapter 1, we're told about the sequence in which God created the world. That God created animals and then he created humans. That God created plants, then animals, and then humans. But in chapter 2, we're told that God created humans and then the plants. And so people have worried about, asked questions about, talked about, and I'm sure that if you're a middle school or high school student or college student, you've heard somebody talk about this because this is a hotbed conversation as it relates to why people should or shouldn't trust in the scripture. But Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 seems to be in conflict with one another. We have a problem, it seems to solve, about the order of creation. It seems as though, you know, Moses on one hand wrote chapter one, but forgot what he wrote in chapter one and wrote an entirely different sequence in chapter two. Now, here's some possible scenarios just to let you know that you can have different ideas about these texts, but come away with the most important idea. Some say that Genesis one is all about the sequential order of creation and that Genesis 2 is a more personal or theological account of creation. That Genesis 1 is wide, but Genesis 2 is very specific as it relates in particular to the first man and to the first woman. And then beyond that, some believe that chapter 2 is a sequential event that it is different than the creation account in chapter one. Not that it's in conflict, it's just a different creation. A lot of people are growing to believe that God just didn't create an original pair, Adam and Eve. But at the very beginning, God created many different humans. And I know for some of you, it's like, say, what? What are you talking about? I've never heard anything like that before. But this is a people who ask questions about this. There are some problems within the text and questions within the text that we have to try to come to some kind of resolve if we are going to walk away and still believe that we can trust the Bible. Now, the folks who believe that not only did God create Adam and Eve, but he created other humans, they say that this helps us understand many of the mysteries in the early part of Genesis, like questions. Where did Cain get his wife? Now, Christians have been forced for the longest time to say, well, it had to be his sister. And that's never been, you know, something easy to say or fun to say. Well, he had to marry his sister. But that was the only other option that many of us thought existed. Other mysteries, like when Cain killed his brother Abel and God put a mark on him. Who was Cain afraid of when he says, if they find me, they will kill me? Who's he talking about? Who's they? Who are the people living in Nod that have become a city and they've urbanized themselves? Who are these people? Some folks say that Adam and Eve lived for an extremely long time within the garden and had lots of children and that's a possibility. And so there's lots of different ways to read Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. One is precise, one is poetic. But, but here is the point. Notice what it says about this human. 
He was formed from the dust of the ground and God breathed air into him. Now, as we read through the rest of the scripture, you're going to find out that the scripture says the very same thing about you. Job says, I was formed like clay by God and he breathed his life into me. The psalmist said in Psalms 103 verse 14, God, you know my frame and you remember that I am but dust. So the very same thing that Genesis says about this human is the very same thing that the scriptures say about you and say about me. And so here's the point. What is true of Adam in this story is also true of you. What is true of Adam in this story is true of all of us. And that means that not only do we read a story about Adam and Eve, but we read a story about you and me. And there's lots of questions that we walk away with from these early texts. And some things that God apparently did not feel compelled to give us clear answers to. And there's room for disagreement. But at the end of the day, there are more important questions that this text does provide answers to. And those are the ones that we are interested in. It says, now... The Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man that he had formed. Now, again, if you grew up in Sunday school, you colored this. If you grew up in church, you've heard people talk about this or, you know, you know allude to it. And this is the account of what we would call the Garden of Eden. And so we have to ask ourselves, when Moses wrote this, when he penned this down for Israel, what did Israel hear and what did Israel understand? What is it that they heard and what was it that they understood? Because he was writing for them to hear something and understand something. He wasn't writing in code and he wasn't writing a mystery. He wasn't writing something that you had to add special insight to or revelation to. This was the revelation that Moses was pinning to them. He was uncovering truth to help them understand God, themselves, mankind and their place in the midst of it all. Now, when you think about the garden, you probably think about the garden like I have thought about the garden for most of my life, life lush trees and rivers and, and fruit and, and just all this incredible lush green, just paradise. And I think it was. I think it was probably all of those things. And, and there's some incredible reading, and I'll pass it along to you, you know, on the app this week that you can read if you're interested in this kind of stuff. But scholars, archaeologists, and historians, they, they've taken all the clues that Scripture give, and they've actually tried to locate where they think the geography might have been where Eden was located. And, and many of them believe it was at the headwaters of the Tigris and the Euphrates River. It was in a, a, a higher land, and, and it's just real fascinating. So there's people who give... All of these words in these texts, a lot of thought, more thought than probably any of us will ever give to it. But there's something that God is communicating that's just simple and upfront. This garden is a sacred space. This garden is like what we would call a temple. You remember Moses built a tabernacle and that was the place where God was in the holiest of holies and then Solomon built a temple and that was the place where God was. He was in the holiest of holies and that was the place where God would meet with humanity. Humanity would come to that place to meet with God and that's what the picture is that Moses is giving us. He's giving us the picture of the garden as a sacred space or perhaps as the first tabernacle or as the first temple because the garden is the epicenter of God's presence. This is where God is and this is where humanity comes to meet God in the garden. The garden is the holy of holies and this is what we're introduced to. And so the storyline goes a little bit further and it says, the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. And in the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And the Lord God commanded man saying, you 
are free. You are free to eat from any tree in the garden. Let's just read those three words in green. You are free. God's first words to humanity were words of freedom. God's first words to people created in his image was you are free. Now, some of us grew up with an idea of God based on the type of religious tradition we grew up in, the type of parents we had, you know, perhaps the geography of where we grew up within the Christian faith or whether or not we grew up in Christian faith and just knew some Christians. Some of us grew up with an idea of God where God was restrictive, that God was always boxing us in, that God, he just had a whole bunch of thou shalt nots and basically anything fun, anything enjoyable, anything that I ever wanted to do with my friends, anything that I ever wanted to do with anybody, you know, it was just off limits. God just had a rule for everything. God was so restrictive that God robbed life of fun and enjoyment. But this is not the God that we are introduced to in the very beginning. In the very beginning, we are introduced to an idea of God that says, you are free. You are free to live a life of fun and enjoyment and satisfaction and pleasure. He says, you are free. And this is the God that we're introduced to. But within that freedom, God put a caveat within that freedom, that scope of freedom that says, you can have all the trees. He says, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat it, you will certainly die. God gives them every tree but one tree. That's freedom. God says, you can have every tree but one tree. There's nothing about that that feels restrictive. There's nothing about that that should feel threatening on the surface. There's nothing about that that should make us feel boxed in, that God is trying to rob me of something, that God is trying to keep me from something, that God knows that I could have so much more fun and God knows I'd be so much more fulfilled if I could just have that one tree. No, God says you can have all the trees, but the one tree you cannot have. And we're introduced to a really important principle here in the very beginning of creation. God gives his image bearers the power of choice. God gives his creation the power to choose. The power to choose the path they take and the life they live. You have a choice between all the trees and one tree. We not only bear his image, but we bear responsibility for our own lives. And that's the way it's been from the very beginning. From the very beginning, God says, you are responsible for the life that you live and you are responsible for the path that you take. And like a good father, he outlines the choices and then he defines the consequence. He says, if you do this, you will certainly die. Now, when we hear this narrative, I, I just wanna break away for a moment because if you've ever spent any time thinking about this or you've ever spent some time you know, shooting the breeze with somebody about this, the inevitable question that comes up about this is why? Why did God even put a tree in the garden to which he would say, I can't allow you to eat from that tree? Why would God even do that? Why even make a tree that was forbidden? Why didn't God just make all the trees of the garden legal? Why? Because of two things, relationship and love. God wanted a relationship with his creation. And the only way that a real relationship can take place is if there is trust. And God gave them the option to choose him or not to choose him, to trust him 
or to not trust him. You can have all the trees of the garden, but there's one that you cannot have. So you're going to either have to decide to trust me that I know best, or you're going to trust yourself. And the dangerous thing is that even in a world that's driven by free choice, sometimes even God doesn't get what he wants. And in this powerful thing that we learn about God giving us choice and the power to choose and the power to bear responsibility, we understand that relationships require trust and love requires choice. God says, I want to have a relationship with you. And the only way that I can have a relationship with you is if that relationship has trust. I want you to love me the way that I love you. And the only way that you can love me the way that I love you is if you have a choice not to love me back. In order to be able to choose for love, you also have to be able to choose against love. In order to be able to choose to receive love, you also have to have the choice in order to reject love. And the reason that this is so consequential is that God, in giving us responsibility for our lives, in giving us the ability to choose, he also provided the possibility for evil. Because wherever there is a choice, there is the possibility for evil. God is not the author of evil. God is not the author of sin. But when he gave us the option to be able to choose, to trust or not trust, to love or not love, God was providing at the same time, simultaneously, beside of that, the possibility for evil. Because evil is the absence of trust. Evil is the absence of what is good and what is love. Evil is the absence of God-likeness. And so when God gave us the choice, he provided the possibility for evil from the very beginning. It says Adam and his wife at this particular time were both naked and they felt no shame. It means they had no reason to pose. They had nothing to hide. There was nothing in between them and God. They had no fear of exposure. They had no fear of something being discovered about themselves. They had no regrets. They had no unfortunate decisions. They had no weak moments. They had no dark moments. They had no past. They had nothing they were embarrassed about. They were naked and not ashamed. And then out of chapter 2, we move into chapter 3, and out of nowhere, a character enters the story that catches us a bit off guard. He says, now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals that the Lord God had made. Moses, he doesn't give us an introduction. He doesn't give us a prologue to the serpent. He doesn't spend time trying to explain who this serpent is. He assumes that everybody in his audience at that particular moment would understand what he's talking about. The serpent slithers into this story and slithers out of this story as quick as one or the other. And what's interesting, something to think about, just something to think about. Moses doesn't mention him after this particular account. He doesn't mention him in the rest of Genesis or in Exodus or Leviticus or Numbers or Deuteronomy. It's really quite intriguing. And so he gives this idea that the serpent who was created, part of the creation of God. And in the ancient world, the serpent was an ancient symbol of life and youth and beauty and wisdom and chaos and power. They were both feared and revered. Uh, Some people believe the serpent at this particular time walked upright. And that's a credible interpretation of the text because later on he's going to be forced to crawl on his belly. But it seems as though since the serpent has shown up at this particular time, it seems as though there's something already amiss in the world. It seems like there's something already off kilter for this serpent to even be here. Now it's going to take us all the way to the New Testament to have the serpent identified as Diabolos, the accuser, Satan, the devil. But here in this story, he just refers to him as the serpent. 
And the serpent comes up to Eve and says, did God really say that you must not eat from any tree in the garden? That's not what God said. God said you can have all the trees except for one. God didn't forbid all the trees. And so here's what the serpent does. And this is a conversation you've had before, perhaps with yourself, perhaps with somebody else. In this moment, these questions are causing Eve to question God's goodness. In this moment, these questions are causing Eve to doubt whether or not she can trust that God is good and his plan for her is also good. Because the bigger principle is when you and I distrust God's heart, sooner or later we will disobey God's word. When you cannot trust that God has your best at heart, when we cannot trust that God's plan for us is for our good, we will ultimately disobey God because we refuse to believe that he is for us and his plan for us is better than our plan for us. The serpent basically says, Eve, you have the right to question God and you have the right to doubt and to distrust what he has told you. Eve, how do you feel about this? How, how does it make you feel that God said you could have all the trees but one tree? Because Eve, if you don't like it, the implication, Eve, if you don't like it, then just pay no attention to it. It's a feeling-driven theology that if it doesn't feel good to you, if it doesn't feel right to you, then just disregard it. And this is a conversation that we're still having in the 21st century. People who don't like what God said, it doesn't feel good to them, it doesn't feel right to them, they don't like the way it makes them feel, they don't understand why God would say that, so they just dismiss it. Because at the heart of all of our hearts, we're all looking for permission theology. Permission that allows us to do what we want to do. And that's what's happening in this text. It's as relevant as the 21st century. It's as relevant as this morning. It's as relevant as last night. It was as relevant as a conversation you've already had this week. It says, the woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, but..." God did say that you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. And then the serpent counters says, you will not certainly die. You will not certainly die, the serpent says to the woman. This is the most dangerous lie that any of us can believe. The lie that says your choices don't have consequences. That's the greatest lie that you and I will ever buy into, that our choices, our individual personal choices will not have consequences. Consequences outside of our self. Yeah, I'm gonna hurt me, but it'll, it'll, it's not gonna affect anybody else. It's not gonna hurt anybody else. Well, if you have anybody that loves you, if you hurt you, it's gonna hurt people who love you. Yeah, I think I, I'm just, I'm, my life's a vacuum. I can do what I wanna do and it's not gonna affect anybody else. That's the greatest lie that anybody has ever believed. The idea that I can be irresponsible and there not be consequences. The idea that we could be irresponsible and there not be consequences. <clears throat> you will not certainly die. No one's gonna get hurt. You're not gonna get hurt. No one else is gonna get hurt. There's no accountability in this. You don't have to worry. You can do what you want to do. Don't believe that sin kills because that's what sin does. Sin kills. Wherever there's sin, it kills. It kills relationships. It kills dreams. It kills futures. It kills families. That's the nature of sin. It kills. And then the serpent goes on and says, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened 
And you will be like God knowing good and evil. In other words, Eve, you won't need God anymore. Eve, you can be your own God. You can be autonomous. You can be free, truly free. Eve, if you could just push this thing, of, this idea, this, this concept of God aside, you get to make up the rules. You can live life any way that you want. If there's no higher authority, if there's no moral lawgiver, if there's no one outside of time and space, then it doesn't matter what we do within time and space. Eve, this idea of God, it's holding you back. Think about how much progress, Eve, you could have if you could just get rid of this obsession with God. And again, I would submit to all of us that this is a conversation our culture is currently wrestling with. If we could just lose the idea of God, if we could just abolish religion and its superstition and its overly sensitive conscience, if we could just push all of that aside, then our culture could truly evolve. Our culture could truly become progressive. Our culture could truly become enlightened. Eve, God's holding you back. And it says, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and just time out, side note, you and I will never feel free as long as we focus our eyes on what's forbidden. You will never feel free as long as you keep your mind fixed on what is forbidden. She had the whole garden to focus on, but all she could focus on was the one thing that God told her she couldn't have. And in that moment, when you focus on what's forbidden, you can't feel free. It was pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom. She took some and she ate it. And then she gave it to her husband who was with her and he ate it. And there's no music. There's no parentheses. But in this moment, this is the moment that sin came into the world. This is the moment that creation in some way we can't fully understand. But we have all experienced it became fractured. In some way, there was a devastating break that happened within creation. The moment that sin came in. When you look around at the world and you say, why in the world is there violence? Why in the world is there injustice? Why in the world is there racism and oppression and corruption and tyranny? Why in the world is there disease? Why in the world is there pain and suffering? Why in the world are these things a part of our world? It's because our world is broke. And Genesis is offering us an explanation to why our world is broke. Sin has broke the world. And we find something equally troubling. God will not get in the way of the consequences of our choices. Many of us have experienced this. We've made our choices and God would not get out of the way. God got out of the way and let our consequences be fully realized. And that's what happens. Verse 7, it says, Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and they made coverings for themselves. Once upon a time... They were naked without shame. Now all of a sudden, all they feel is guilt and shame. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden. Why is God walking in the garden? Where is he walking to? He is walking to Adam and to Eve who were hiding with their guilt and their shame. 
He's walking towards them. Walking in the cool of the day and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And God, you know, you remember, Adam, where art thou? Not that God needed to know, but he wanted Adam to come face to face with what had happened. His choice, her choice, and the consequences of that choice. Everything had changed. They didn't see themselves the same. They didn't see the world the same. And most importantly, they didn't see God the same. Adam answered and said, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid. They had never been afraid of their creator before. They had never been afraid of God before. They had never been afraid of their heavenly father before. Because I was naked, I hid. There was something now in the midst of the guilt, the shame and the brokenness of all of it. They no longer believed that God loved them. At least the way that he loved them before when they had it right. But now everything's wrong and they're responsible. They're not so sure that God cares about them in the same way that he cared about them once upon a time. And so God comes to them and they begin to blame. They blame God. They blame each other. They blame the serpent because the reality was just too painful to confront. They were the problem. They are responsible. But the good news is, the greater point is, there is God in the midst of it all. They had ran away. They had hid in their guilt and their shame and their brokenness. But God came walking after them in the cool of the day because our mess is the place that God loves to meet us. When we make a mess of it all, when we create the mess, when our responsibility led the mess, when our choices created the mess, God doesn't run away from the mess. God runs towards the mess. When the alarm started going off, God did not stay in bed and God did not run the other way, but God ran towards the danger. God ran towards the risk because when your kids are involved, you run towards the mess. You don't run away from it. And we're introduced to the story of Genesis 1, 2, and 3. The beginning of the story. God created. We rebelled. We ran away. He came after us. If you want to know what Genesis 1, Genesis 2, Genesis 3, with all of our questions, with all the interpretations, at the end of the day, what is the biggest thing that we know? God created. We rebelled. We ran away. He came after us. Let's all just say that out loud together. God created. We rebelled. We ran away. He came after us. That's the story. That's the beginning of the story. And thus begins the rest of the story where God will stop at nothing to get his family back. God clothed them. And after God clothed them, God promised them that one day, there would be a son born of a woman who would crush the head of the serpent. That one day there would be someone born who would make right everything sin had made wrong. And thus begins the rest of the story where God is chasing after us. At the first tree, the tree of life in the garden, Adam and Eve lost access to it. They were kicked outside of the garden and the garden was shut up, never to be able to return back. 
they lost access to the tree of life and they began to not only were they dead spiritually, but now they began to die physically. But when we open up the pages of the New Testament, God sent his son, born of a woman. At the right time, it says, Jesus was born. Jesus lived and then Jesus was arrested and he was hung on a tree on Golgotha's hill. There was a tree in Genesis where we found death. But there's a tree outside of Jerusalem in the New Testament where God's son died for our sins that we find life. There's a tree in Eden where we found a curse, but there's a tree that we read about where we find blessing. And that is the story of how God started making his way to you. He knew from the very beginning that we would reject him, but he refused to reject us. And when we ran away, his love compelled him to come after us. Heavenly Father, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Lord, this is the story, the beginning of the story that God, you created and we rebelled. This is just not the story of Adam and Eve. This is the story of all of us. We rejected, we ran away. God, you came after us and you made a way that in our brokenness, with our guilt and our shame, even sometimes as we hide from you because we, we wonder, can you truly love us in what you know about us? But God, this story reminds us that the one who knows us best is the one who loves us most. Our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed. If you're here and you've never decided to follow Jesus, today would be the day. Today would be the best day to do that that he that knew no sin became sin for us. And God demonstrated his love for sinners, that he died for us. And he made a way that we could be forgiven and made whole and brought back into a right relationship with him. So you could pray a simple prayer that says, Heavenly Father, thank you for loving me. Thank you for coming after me and not giving up on me. Thank you for Jesus, for his death and his resurrection. I ask you to forgive me, to change me. In Jesus' name. With their heads bowed, our eyes closed, if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, this is the beginning of your story. This is a reminder that no matter what kind of mess we create, he never runs away. He meets us in the mess. And even if you're here and you feel unloved, and if you're here and you feel that the guilt and shame has choked out how God feels about you, Here's what I want you to know. Everything that God knows about you and me has not changed his love for you or me. He knows our best moment. He knows our worst moment. He knows the best. He knows the worst. And he loves us completely. So Father, encourage us that we are sons and daughters who are loved unconditionally and we never have to be afraid of anyone who loves us unconditionally. 
So thank you, God, for setting your love on us.